You are listening to the Critical Mass Radio Show, Orange County's business talk show focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies with your host, Richard Franzi. And welcome to this episode of Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. I am your host, Richard Franzi. This is podcast episode number 1088. And I tell you, we have a great show planned for you. As the first executive director of UCI's multidisciplinary cybersecurity policy and research institute, Brian Cunningham is focused on solutions-oriented strategies address, to address the legal, technical, and policy challenges and to combat cyber threats, protect individual privacy, civil liberties, and maintain public safety and economic and national security. Big job, big guy. Glad he's on the show. He can do it. Uh, Brian, welcome to Critical Mass Radio Show. Thank you. You'll notice that brevity is not anywhere in that description. <laughs> That's not part of our mission. <laughs> yes, we're going to. Well, we must fully explain it. I've been looking forward to having you on the show since we talked about your coming on. But before we get into the Institute and all the rest of the great things, maybe you can start by talking to us a little bit about your background, kind of an interesting professional story for Brian Cunningham. Well, you just published a book about unintended consequences, and so I'll mention a few parts of my life and career that were completely unintended. Okay. There are a number of them, but I won't uh, take up too much of the time for that. First one is I was a sophomore in the University of Colorado in Boulder. I had played drums in high school and saved up enough money to go to college and pay my own way, and I was starting to run out of money. My father, who was a minister, had moved to the state of Iowa, and he was starting to get the sense he might have to start to pay for this. Mm -hmm. So he did his research, found out about this fiction writer's workshop that they have at the University of Iowa, which is pretty famous, and he knew I wanted to write fiction, so he said, why don't you apply to that? So I did my research. Of course, there was no internet then, <laughs> and I found out that the University of Iowa Fiction Writer's Workshop is almost impossible to get into. So I said, Dad, how about this? I'll write a short story, I'll submit it, and if I get in, I'll go. And if I don't get in, you have to pay for me to finish at Colorado. Seems fair. And he took the bet and I got in, and uh, so that really changed, changed a lot of the trajectory of my life. So you did get in? I the... did get in, and okay. I went, which was exactly the opposite of uh, my plan. Right. There are many, many examples of unintended consequences in the history of intelligence, which, as you know, I'm a former CIA officer and a bit of an armchair intelligence historian. And I'll just mention two really quickly, because I think your listeners will find them interesting. The obvious one, which is pretty well-known in popular culture now, is that the CIA in the Reagan administration armed the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Great movie about that called Charlie Wilson's War. I lived through that mm -hmm. as a CIA officer. And most, I think, fair-minded historians credit that program with significant part of bringing down the Soviet Union. Pretty good result for the United States. Unfortunately, some of those Mujahideen later became Al-Qaeda. Mm. And the CIA will hotly dispute the extent to which their people were bin Laden's people, and I think the CIA is probably right about that. But that was certainly an unintended consequence. And you have to wonder, even if the president had known during the 80s that Al-Qaeda would have arisen, would it be worth it anyway to end the Cold War? Right. But I think knowing what the potential consequences would have been, you could have done both. You could have done the program and guarded against Al-Qaeda. The second one, and I'll try to be brief, but this is just so fascinating to me. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, the president, President Kennedy, very famously put a blockade up mm -hmm. to prevent the Soviet Navy from bringing the missiles into Cuba. This was a very tense standoff, could have led to a, a world war. And the intelligence that led him to make that decision, as opposed to invading Cuba, which is what most of his military advisors wanted him to do, 
was that there were no operational nuclear weapons on the island of Cuba. Wow. What we learned decades later is there were. In fact, there were more than 40 nuclear weapons <laughs> on Cuba <laughs> at the time. And instead of the 10,000 Soviet troops we thought were there were there, there were 40,000 Soviet troops there. So this is just an exquisite piece of good, bad luck, right? Right. Because if that intelligence had been correct, if they would have told Kennedy that there was Operation Nuclear Weapons there, he probably would have invaded the country to try to knock out those weapons, and we would have faced 40,000 40, Soviet 000. troops and probably a world war. Right. On the other hand, if he had not done the blockade out of fear of those operational nuclear weapons, the missiles to bring them to Washington would have arrived two weeks later, and we would have been in a complete stalemate. See, I told you this was going to be a great show, ladies and gentlemen. Brian Cunningham, thank you. Uh, for all that tie-in with the book as well. I appreciate your <laughs> professionalism. So let's talk about the UCI Cybersecurity Policy and Research Institute. Long name, what is it in place to do? Well, there are a lot of cybersecurity institutes and centers around the country now, which is good because we need all we can get. It's such an important and complex issue. Our niche, if you will, is we tried to create an environment and a cast of characters where we could look at complex cybersecurity-related issues from multiple standpoints, which really no one else is doing. Most other institutes are, I don't want to say stovepipe, but you know they're either technical or they're policy. Uh -huh. They're either computer scientists or they're lawyers. What we try to do is to set up a multidisciplinary institution, and I actually answer to six deans on campus, which is probably a topic for another conversation. But So it's uh, law. Uh, computer science, engineering, social science, social ecology, and physical science, which is where our cryptography is. No business? N not yet with the business school. Okay. Interesting. Um, but the idea was that you could look at hard problems with no ideology, no preconceived notions, and bring in all these disciplines. And I think in some ways, more importantly, and maybe of more interest to your listeners, we're multidisciplinary on the outside, too. If you think of those deans as our board of directors, okay. then our participants are more than 300 Southern California and national businesses, government agencies, privacy and civil liberties groups. And that really, I think, is where our special sauce is, is we can go to those stakeholders in the, the security of our infrastructure and find out what it is that they think is most important to be researching that will have a short-term positive effect on the cyber ecosystem, if you will, and then translate that into work that our institute and the cybersecurity faculty on our campus can do. And I think that is unique, and I think we're off to a good start. And why did you agree to head it up? What, I mean, what is it that compelled you to go in this direction? So I was a government officer for 15 years, a CIA officer, Justice Department prosecutor, and then I was Condi Rice's lawyer for uh, cybersecurity and terrorism when she was the national security advisor and was involved in drafting the first national strategy to secure cyberspace. So I've been in that field since 2004, almost before there was a field. Mm. And then I practiced cybersecurity law and, and policy and technology for about 10 years. But I also was doing some training and advising for police departments. So on things like wearing body-worn cameras and what the policies are behind that and automated license plate readers and cybersecurity. And when they stood up the Institute here at Irvine, one of its original missions was to create high-quality cybersecurity and digital evidence handling training for police. Okay. Because the police departments can't hire enough cybersecurity people either, just right. like every other employer. So 
Someone from the L.A. Sheriff's Department, where I had consulted, had recommended me to go to a meeting to possibly be on an advisory board for this new institute. And then I guess I missed a meeting, and the next thing you know, I'm the executive director. <laughs> <laughs> and bringing it all back to unintended consequences <laughs> yeah. then, all right? right? Pay attention, ladies and gentlemen. Go to those meetings when you're assigned to them. All right. Well, why don't we take a short break, and when we come back, I'd like to delve it a little bit more into your experience as the deputy legal advisor to then NSA director Condoleezza Rice. Can we talk about that? Absolutely. A bit? All right, ladies and gentlemen, you don't want to go anywhere. Brian Cunningham is our guest here on this episode of Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. We'll be at, back after this word from me. If you are an Orange County business executive, this message is for you. Do you ever feel isolated with no place to turn for advice or feedback? Who holds you accountable to your commitments in your company? Where do you find the right resources to help you and your company grow? If you have these questions, then Critical Mass for Business might be the answer for you. Critical Mass for Business is committed to helping you make better decisions. These are groups of peers running businesses just like you, providing a great sounding board to test ideas and concepts, review plans and goals, and present issues and opportunities for discussion. The result is improved strategy, accountability, people, and execution skills. If you are interested in learning more, go to www.criticalmassforbusiness.com and learn more about our executive peer group. And welcome back to this edition of Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. I told you the first block, we had a great guest, and he's back for the second block. <laughs> but for those of you that might be listening or l viewing us either on our Facebook live stream or later as a, a YouTube video, if you notice something different on the in the studio from the first block to the second block, if you're the first person that either text me at 949-887-4104, 949-887-4104, or you reach me through my email on my website at Critical Mass for Business, I will send you a free copy of my latest book, Killing Cats, Leads the Rats, and I'll autograph it. But anyway, I need to get back to my questions with Brian Cunningham, Executive Director for the UCI's Multidisciplinary Cybersecurity Policy and Research Institute. Okay, so what can you share with us as the challenges that the U.S. faces protecting domestic firms. And I'm really asking for you to kind of think back to your time when you were the legal advisor to the NSA director. You know, what, what's the challenge for the government to protect U.S. firms from foreign agents? Well, that's a really, really important question. And I saw this in my 10 or 12 years of practice as a cybersecurity lawyer for companies. I think we're in a really unique time that maybe hasn't occurred since the early 19th century in which the vast majority of the critical infrastructure of the United States is owned and operated by the private sector. Can I hold a second? Can we get ready to gong that? Ladies and gentlemen, you know when you hear the gong, if you weren't fully paying attention, you want to go back at least 30 seconds and hear what Brian just said. But for those of you that are listening to the live stream, could you repeat that, Brian? We're in a time that I don't think we've seen since the early 19th century where a huge percentage of the critical infrastructure of the country is owned and operated by the private sector, but that infrastructure is being targeted by foreign governments as though our companies were governments. And our government is either unwilling or unable to protect those companies. I believe that in the next 10 years at least, companies cannot count on very much assistance from the government at all. And actually, they don't want it. Really? Because... The public backlash against the tech companies after Snowden was so severe that most American companies are really going out of their way to act like they're not cooperating with the government, 
even when they are. Wow. So where does that leave companies? Well, you have to do all the defensive cybersecurity things that we can talk about in a minute. Uh, my, my analogy is, if you remember the old device called the club that you put on the steering wheel of your car. I do. That would not have stopped a professional thief with a diamond saw who gets in the car and has 20 minutes in there. But that's not the point. You want them to look in the windshield and say, I'm not touching this guy's car. I'm going to the next lady or guy's car. Got it. That's what businesses have to do. They have to get themselves to a position where they don't look like an attractive target. Mm. But that is not going to be enough. One of the main things we're working on at our institute is on this issue of attribution. How do you prove who caused a cyber attack? Right. And one of the reasons, which we can talk about, is because it's a massive national security issue, looking at what's happening with our elections. But another reason is that I believe in the next 10 years, companies are going to be put into a position where they actually have to defend themselves. Now, listen carefully, everyone. Right now, that is illegal. You cannot launch any defensive measures outside your <laughs> firewall. <laughs> so, And also, I'm not your lawyer, so I can't represent you. <laughs> right. But there own. is legislation in Congress right now, and I think some version of it will pass in the next couple of years, authorizing private companies to take some measures to go back against their attackers. Wow. And when that happens the plaintiff's lawyers are going to love it because there's going to be all kinds of lawsuits about hitting the wrong target and did you use too much, et cetera. And that's where this attribution comes in. We have to have a better way to know and to prove who hit us, particularly if we're going to hit back. Because, and I'm talking with Brian Cunningham, I mean, is a part of it is the attackers know they don't want to be uncovered, so they're making it either look like it's somebody else or making it difficult to even figure out where it's actually coming from? Even without any attempts to obscure your identity and your location, it's difficult right now to successfully prove who hit you. But they're all trying to obscure their location. Right. So one of the things that people say is, well, all these attacks come from China or Russia. A huge number of them are perpetrated by actors in, in China and Russia, but a lot of them also go through China and Russia. Oh Why? Because the attackers want you to think it's China and Russia. Right. So uh, this is a business show, and, and, and I like to stay on business topics, but I, I just have to ask you this question because of your unique experience here on the podcast. Do you see this having the risk of changing from a cyber issue to a on-the-ground real person issue? Hmm. Funny you should ask that. And this was not teed up, folks. No. I, I actually published the first uh, law and ethics chapter in an IT security handbook back in 2005. And we created a scenario where uh, a future president, actually it was Hillary Clinton, so we got that one wrong, but future <laughs> president was faced with what looked like a cyber attack on the power grid. And she had to decide if it was real and how to stop it. And there was so much disagreement between myself and my two co-authors in 2005, not that long ago, about whether a foreign adversary could ever affect kinetic space, could ever cause a physical event in the real world through cyberspace, that that book has a footnote saying that we don't agree on it. Hmm. I think I was proven right. And you've seen attacks on oil refineries in Saudi Arabia. You've seen attacks on uh, Iranian nuclear facilities. You've seen ransomware. So this is all in the real world now. And by the way, wait until we have autonomous vehicles, right? right? They've already proven they can kill people without a cyber attack. What happens when instead of locking up your data, the ransomware purveyor locks up your car? Right. Ooh, that's a scary... Good times. That, okay, Brian Cunningham, I didn't mean to get... Wow, but I'm glad you shared that with us because, you know, again, I, I'm trying to help the business community to appreciate the future. And you don't have to be a big company to be a, a target for cyber attack, right? I mean, Yeah. One of the big myths that's causing damage to a lot of small, medium-sized companies is that smaller is safer. And that's not necessarily true for two reasons. Right. One is 
that a lot of the attacks are automated. There's not somebody sitting in Moscow or St. Petersburg at a keyboard. There, there's software that's scanning the whole Internet for vulnerabilities, and when they find them, then it plows into your system, and then maybe a human being comes on and decides whether or not to attack you. But also, small and medium-sized businesses are being targeted. Why? Again, it's the club analogy, because the big companies have done a lot more to protect themselves. And so I would say the two biggest threats to businesses of all sizes, but certainly small to medium-sized businesses right now, are business email compromise. So, you know, you get a a phishing email that looks like it came from your CEO, and it says, please move this money now, and the CFO falls for it and sends the money, and or you click on a link, and then the bad guys come in, and they own your system, and they push ransomware on you, which is the second largest threat. And that is your data being locked up and either used against you or stolen. Good news is there's two ways. Those are two attacks that are particularly easy to prevent. Okay. The first one, business email compromise, is you can do some of it with good firewalls and good technical cybersecurity, but the big thing is training, 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 training. training. You have to get your employees to understand what these attacks look like, and if there's any function of your company that involves moving money or critical assets, never authorize it by an email or a text. Do it in person. And on ransomware, back up your data. You got your data backed up, it can't be locked up. If I wasn't as short on time as I am, I'd have the gong. But ladies and gentlemen, this will substitute for the gong. If you didn't fully understand what we just talked about, I would ask you to go back and listen to it. As a matter of fact, I'd ask you to share this podcast with others in your company. I've got a number of questions I want to ask you. I, I loved going to your uh, last two events. Uh, and the, Thank you. And they're great. So if you're in Southern California and you get on his mailing list because you want to attend these at UCI or wherever they're holding them here in Southern California. The last one was on election hacking. What was the consensus in your opinion? Because you have moderated a day-long conversation with experts about election hacking. What is, for my audience, sort of the headlines from that event? Well, we wanted to cover the waterfront. So we had really the greatest experts in the country in three areas, purely technological, uh, legal and policy, and then intelligence and national security. And I think there was pretty broad consensus that Every single voting machine out there can be hacked, and relatively easily. Oh, my God. The defense that we have, ironically, is that our country is so non-networked that (laughs) if the Russians really wanted to change enough votes to change an election, now I'm not talking about all the propaganda, which we can talk about in the fake news, but if they really wanted to actually change votes in a voting machine, it would be a huge effort because of how non-networked we are. Having said that, though, they don't really have to actually change that much they just have to convince us that they changed. Yes. The second point I think there was consensus on is that there are fixes for these technological problems. The Netherlands just in the last election pulled all their voting machines out of the country and reissued paper ballots. Oh, my God. And that is something that we could do. You know, we risk going back to the hanging chads from 2000, but I would say that's a lesser risk, actually. There are also technical fixes, which I think probably will be in place by maybe not 2020, but shortly thereafter. The the reason this is such a hard problem from a technical standpoint is it would be relatively easy to secure voting if it did not have to be anonymous, right? Mm. People say, well, how come I can secure my ATM and I can't secure voting? Because the bank is allowed to know who you are and know the details about you. You have to, in voting, protect both the technology and the anonymity. That is a big point. The third thing, I think, which goes to this larger question of, Russians breaking into the DNC and leaking emails and spreading propaganda is, so far, the United States has done nothing to tell Putin or anyone else on the planet, knock it off. (laughs) 
I, I'm serious. They're, they, they're bullies. They will push on whatever door is open. And until we show them that there are going to be real consequences, whether it's in cyberspace or in the real world, not just Russia, but other countries, they're having seen how successful it is, going to do it themselves. And by the way, it's not just affecting our elections. They're right now today affecting social and divisive racial and political issues. Right. They, they were a little bit behind some of the Black Lives Matter stuff. They're behind some of the gun rights stuff. They're, they're trying to change everything about our society. And nothing you just said there is a political statement. What you're saying there is a factual statement based on what you have seen as an expert in this field. Right. I'm a, I'm a career civil servant. I'm not a politician. Okay. Uh, and I don't, I don't, I mean, of course, as a voter, I care about outcomes of election, but that's not where we are as an institute. We are trying to just call balls and strikes. Right. Okay. So I only have two minutes left here with you, and I have three questions. <laughs> So you guess what? Well, I already answered one of them. I, I jumped ahead. So. <laughs> yeah, so that's good. So I only have two <laughs> questions. But what do you foresee coming in the way of advancements in cybersecurity? Well, I hope they're going to be a lot because we need them. I think the three most important areas are the one I've already talked about, which is better technology about and better law regarding the ability to prove who did an attack. That's important for war and peace issues. It's important for criminal prosecutions. And it's going to be important for private companies, as I said, when they get into this business of, of, of attacking back to some extent. The second one is the application of artificial intelligence and machine learning to massive amounts of data. Now, those are shiny objects right now. They're buzzwords. Right. Uh, and at UCI and the Computer Science School, we have some of the best machine learning and artificial intelligence faculty in the world. And they're also, they're buzzwords for a reason, though, right? Because they're very, very useful. And... The old model of having antivirus software on all your laptops is going to be gone soon, and it's all going to depend on the, our, the, looking at the data in the cloud, applying AI to it, and stopping the threats before they ever get to your wow. laptop. And then the third thing is just we have to have a revolution in training. Mm. Uh, as I mentioned, I think, before the show, by 2025, it's estimated there will be at least 500,000 unfilled cybersecurity jobs. And that's not just an economic crisis, that's a national security crisis. Right. But, kids listening at home, it's also an opportunity. Yes. This is a huge growth area. It's fascinating. Obviously, I've spent a lot of my career in it, so I would say go get those degrees. There you go. And if you're a parent of a child who's thinking about a college degree, this is certainly a time to maybe have them listen to this part of it and look at what Brian and, and the team are doing at UCI and the Cybersecurity and Policy Institute. Maybe you'll come back. Sure, because we just scratched the surface on what I'd like to talk to you about. I think there's there's so much more. If someone would like to learn more about your institute, where would you direct them to go online? The best place is to just go to cpri.uci.edu. That's our website. It has links to our social media, but you can also follow us on Twitter at at uci underscore cyber and on Facebook, like us at facebook.com slash UCI Cyber. And, and for those of you, thank you. And for those of you that live in uh, Southern California and uh, you're not on the mail list or you're not in touch with all the great activities and things that Brian is doing in the community, I have to tell you, you need to get on that distribution list. You, and, and when you can make it, I tell you, it is time well spent. You will get more out of it than you will give into it. And the time, uh, this is sort of like peeling back the onion, this cybersecurity. Yeah. And, and unless you have multiple conversations, you really only see a very small slice of the problem. And not only that, it changes all the time. And the attackers changes. are always morphing. And, and, you know, unintended consequences, machine learning and AI, I just wonder what are the unintended consequences. Yeah, well, are. the bad guys are going to use it too. Right. And we haven't even touched on Facebook. Right. 
right? I mean, there's so much that is in the business realm. This bleeds into the business world that it's not just a government policy issue. It is, I think, it's a way of life issue in some ways for the for the for the uh, the country to really be able to maintain our standard of living and understand yeah. how to protect ourselves. The way I think about it, Rick, is like Dunkirk. We've all seen this movie recently. Powerful. This was a situation where the entire British army was about to be wiped out by the Nazis, probably would have led to the invasion of Great Britain. The government could not solve that problem. So what did they do? They asked the citizens to solve it for them, and they sent thousands and thousands and thousands of rowboats and sailboats and yachts and pulled those soldiers off the beach. I think now Americans have to be a little bit like those boaters off of Dunkirk. Boy, that's a, that's a rallying cry, and that's why, ladies and gentlemen, I told you this was going to be a good <laughs> interview, and I um, and I got him to say on the air that he's willing to come back. So now my producers will work on on making that happen. Thank you for being my a friend pleasure. of the program and a part of the community. I've really enjoyed this, Paul. Thank you for engineering your your eyes off today, and my producers, who we wouldn't be able to do the show without Joan Park, Crystal Nunley, and Haley Stern. Thank you very much. If you'd like to connect with me on social media, start at LinkedIn. Richard Franzi, F-R-A-N-Z-I. Visit my website, Critical Mass for Business. And until our next show, and if you're listening to the live stream, that'll be in a few minutes, <laughs> I hope all of your business decisions will move your company in a positive direction. You have been listening to Critical Mass Radio Show Business Talk Show, focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies. With your host, Richard Franzi.